be jailed for it and killed for it, and they died unjustly. And their lives were, well, because they died, obviously, their lives were ruined because of it. For example, there's Socrates. Some of you know who Socrates is. He was a Greek philosopher in ancient Athens who uh, was very wise and, and taught many interesting things. And uh, he challenged the, the leaders in the city of, um, of Athens to the point where they decided that he needed to go. So they, they had him put to death uh, because he was questioning the gods and he was corrupting the youth. At least those were the charges that they used against him. And they made him drink a cup of hemlock. Seneca was another philosopher. This was a Roman philosopher who was killed by the emperor Nero, who was the same emperor who put the apostle Paul to death, also on trumped-up charges. And those are just a number of ancient examples. You can go down through history and, and say that there are many who basically were powerless before a corrupt government. There was nothing they could do. And some would argue that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the preeminent example of this phenomenon. He came into the world to help us, to enlighten us. He had this gospel message that he brought that was opening, meant to open the hearts and minds of people and teach humanity to love one another. You all know the golden rule that is sometimes attributed to Jesus, um, that you should do to others as you would have them do to you, that kind of thing. But the powers, the religious leaders who were uh, in charge of uh, the world in which Jesus lived, they felt threatened by him. And so they conspired against him. They, they had trumped up charges. They put him in a kangaroo court and they railroaded him all the way to his death on the cross. And this, by the way, let me just say, is very common in our world today. So you know that I, many of you know that I do interviews with people. I, I, as many non-Christians as I can talk to about what they believe, I try to do that with them. And virtually to a man, every non-Christian I've ever asked this question to, what do you think about Jesus? They say, well, he lived for sure. He was a real person and he did some amazing things and he was an incredible teacher and then they killed him. So the people that I've talk to would admit that this is basically the story of Jesus, that he was this wonderful man who did many great things, taught many great things, and then he was unjustly put to death on that cross. Now, obviously, the scriptures teach that Jesus' death was gruesome. They teach that Jesus' death was, was horrible. Crucifixion was an extremely painful way uh, uh, to dying. He suffered unspeakably in his death, and it was unjust. If you look at it just from one perspective, from the horizontal perspective, from the human perspective, yes, Jesus' trial was a fake trial. It was a kangaroo court when he was put to death. They had no real charges to lay against him. That's all true. Scripture, scripture says that Jesus was not a hapless victim. In fact, the Gospels actually go out of their way to say that Jesus' death was deliberate, that it was his destiny to suffer and die, and that he, in fact, controlled that destiny. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross centuries ago, it was actually planned. And actually, of all the apostles, John is the one who really emphasizes this. There's a place in John chapter 10, uh, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and listen to what he says. 
He says, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Hear that? No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So John shows that, that Jesus... Uh, is in, con- in complete control of his death. Every detail from his arrest right up till his cry, it is finished, is orchestrated. It's tragic, but it's purposeful. It's meant. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. Now, two things I want to just briefly share with you this morning uh, in terms of reflection. I want to show, I want to demonstrate that from this text. And then I want to tell you why that matters. So Jesus' death was orchestrated, was planned, was purposeful. I want to show you that's true, and then I want to tell you why that matters. And it matters big time, okay? So here we go. First of all, let me show you that it's true. John uses this phrase in our passage several times. He uses this phrase, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he uses that phrase more than any of the other gospel writers, and he uses it more frequently the closer that Jesus gets to his crucifixion. So in verse 24, for example, he says, So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They're talking about this quote, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then it quotes the Psalms. And John's point is to emphasize that the events of Jesus' death were planned actually not just a while ago, not just when uh, when David actually wrote the psalm, Psalm 22, that talks about them casting uh, lots for the garments of Jesus, but actually before the beginning of time, that before God even created the world, he had planned to save his people from their sin by sending his son to go to the cross. Now, remember, I just said this is a quote from Psalm 22. It's verse 18. Listen to this. Verse 18 of Psalm 22 says, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. By the way, those of you who... uh, who have the time or the inclination, I encourage you to go home today and read Psalm 22. Think about this. A thousand years before Jesus lived and died, Psalm 22 was penned. And Psalm 22 makes astoundingly accurate statements about what was going to happen to Jesus. And this statement, that they cast lots for my clothing, is remarkable because the soldiers didn't know that they were fulfilling their prophecy when they did this. The soldiers are Roman soldiers, they're pagan soldiers, they have nothing to do with with the, the Jewish scriptures or anything like that. They didn't fulfill it consciously, they just did it. And notice, it says in verse 28... Uh, sorry, verse 24, this is what the soldiers did. In other words, they fulfilled this prophecy naturally. They were following their their natural, personal desires, and in doing so, they fulfilled this prophecy. Now, 
That's not all there is to it, though, because if you look at verse 28, it says that Jesus fulfilled prophecy too. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled once again, he said, I am thirsty. There's that phrase again. This time it's different, though. The soldiers fulfilled prophecy unconsciously. They're just living their lives, doing their thing, and prophecies are being fulfilled. Jesus fulfills it consciously. And it's quite astounding, really, because he's suffering so badly on the cross. I'm not going to go into all the scientific explanations about how painful death by crucifixion is. You'll just have to trust me. It really, 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 really hurts. And in the midst of all that pain, as he's hanging on that cross, Jesus has the wherewithal, Phil, my work isn't done yet. And of course, he says, I'm thirsty, and so the soldiers give him sour wine. This is different, by the way, from the wine mixed with myrrh that they tried to give him earlier. If you read the whole story of Jesus' death, there's a point where the soldiers, actually, they, they're showing a little bit of mercy. They kind of want to relieve his suffering a little bit because they see that he's in such agony. And so they say, here, drink this. This is like a bit of a sedative, and Jesus refuses that. But this time, in order to fulfill these words from Psalm 69, where it says, those who sit at... That's the wrong one. 21, sorry. Yeah. Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my first thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. In order to fulfill that prophecy, Jesus received this sour vinegar, wine vinegar mix that the soldiers gave him. Okay. So we know this was orchestrated because prophecy was being fulfilled. But there's another reason that we know that Jesus' death was orchestrated, and it's this. When Jesus was finished suffering for sin, and when he drinks that wine vinegar and then says, it is finished, he uses this word that means accomplished. It's one word, so that phrase in your Bible where it says, it is finished, is actually just one word that means accomplished or completed. Now, think about this for a second. When you look at the cross, you see a man dying there unjustly because of a corrupt government in a very, very painful way. But here's the thing. Jesus' death was not the most painful death in history. Jesus' unjustness, the, the unjustness of his death was the most unjust in history because even if other people have been trumped up on charges in kangaroo courts in the past, they were probably guilty of something in their lives that deserved some sort of punishment, but Jesus is the only person that ever lived who never sinned once, who never committed any kind of crime ever, who was perfect in every way, and he was being put to death. But his physical suffering, that physical suffering was not the worst that anybody has ever experienced in the history of the world. It's actually his suffering for sin. It's the spiritual suffering. It's the psychological suffering. It's being ripped from his, the bosom of the love of his father that is the suffering. And that's the part that really matters. I want to, a way to do that, I want to quote to you from a book by a, a, a British guy by the name of Francis Spufford. What a name, eh? Spufford. Yeah. British people are cool. Anyhow, 
This is, I admit, this is a pretty long quote. I've never quoted in a sermon anything even close to this long before, but it is so good. I will try to make it compelling. Reading is not a good way to get people to listen to you, I admit, but I'm going to try, and I'm going to ask you to try to listen. This is Spufford describing Jesus going to the cross and hanging on the cross. Daylight finds him in a procession again, but this time no one could mistake him for a king. He's stumbling along under the weight of his own instrument of execution, a great big wooden thing he can hardly lift. With an escort of the empire's soldiers and the bystanders who've come blinking out of their lodgings where they spent the festival night, don't, they don't see their hopes or even the possibility of their hopes parading by. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. Remember Jesus, just a week earlier, he came in riding on a donkey. He was the king that was going to overthrow Rome, and now he's walking with this cross hanging over his back, and people are disappointed. They see everything in themselves that is too weak or too afraid to confront the strapping paratroopers. And much though they hate the soldiers, they hate him more for his pathetic slide into victimhood. Word of his loose living his impiety, his pleasure in bad company goes round in whispers. And just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside, something furtive. He's so pale and sickly looking with that dried blood around his mouth. He looks like a pedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock, as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot on the new day. Someone kicks his arse as he goes by and whoops, down he goes, flat on his nose with the cross pinning him like a struggling insect. And let's face it, it's funny. Yeshua is a joke. He's less a Messiah, more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. The soldiers lead him up out of the city gate and laboriously slipping and sliding with crunching blows from spear butts to motivate him where death sentences are carried out. They tie him onto the cross and plant it upright. It's the empire's punishment for rebellious slaves, slow and nasty by design, devised to be a spectacle of days-long struggle and gasping to passers-by. On a cross, you choke to death. When you're finally too tired to heave your own weight up, weight up to take the next breath. Yeshua hangs there. He twists against the ropes to snatch the precious air which whistles in his flattened nose. He can't do anything deliberate now. The strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought as much for him as it has for everyone else who has ever been stuck to one of these horrible contravances or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet, now this is where you really got to listen. He keeps on taking it in. It is not what he does. It is what he is. He is all open door, 
to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped, and he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it all as his own. This is mine, he says, and he embraces it with all that is left in him, each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious, as if it were itself the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it. So many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him around and drags him down. This is not a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not some supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love going where we go, all of us, when we end. Yeshua is long past trying to show what lies beyond the limits of the world. He is traveling into tightening in on him, tightening down to a rib cage that won't fill, tightening on him as consequences tighten on anyone. He's gone to the place our sorrows lead to at least their worst. Guilt's dead end. Panic's no exit loop, despair's junkyard where everything is busted. There's nothing to keep him company there but the light he's always felt shining beneath things. But the light is going away. He's so deep down now in the geology of woe, so buried beneath the mountain's weight of it, that the pressure is squeezing out his feeling for the light. There's nothing left of it for him but a speck. A pinpoint the world grinds in on itself. A dot dimming as the strata of the dark are piled heavier and heavier on him. And then it goes out. Of course it does. Love can't repair death. Death is stronger than love. We all know that. But Yeshua didn't. Until now. This is the first time in his entire life he's ever felt alone. There is no love song. There is no kind father. Just a man on a cross dying in pain. A foolish man who chose to give up life and breath to be a carcass on a pole. The yellow walls of the city blur with Yeshua's tears and he opens his mouth and howls the news knew only to him that we are abandoned in a dark place where help never comes. And then he says, it's finished. It's done. This plan set out before the universe was even made is accomplished, this plan that God himself would swallow all the hurt, 
all the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering, all the ugly that our sin has caused. And then it says, lastly, that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Literally, the the language says, he pillowed his head. There's no sudden jerk, no final get eyes. So what? Three things. As you go home, three things. First, this is evidence that he had to do it. Jesus had to do it. Here's my question. He wept and died and was torn from the bosom of his father because of your sin. Do you weep over your sin? Do you realize how serious it is that this had to be done, that there was no other way? You heard that description that I read from Spufford. No wonder when he was in the garden, Jesus trembled and sweat blood and said, Lord, Father, if there's any other way, please, can can we do something else? He knew what was coming. And we had a role in it. We made it necessary. You know when you hear of a car accident on the radio, you hear, you're driving down the road and you hear that a little girl got hit by a car and was killed and you think, oh, that's terrible. And you might even shed a tear at the thought of the family and the, the pain that they're going through. What if you killed the girl? I know a man who 40 years ago was in an accident where he killed a little girl and it was not his fault, it was an accident, but every time he speaks about it, even 40 years later, he begins to weep uncontrollably. That's the first thing. Second thing, this should magnify and just Set on fire your love for Jesus. Because nobody made him do it. Nobody made him do it. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. He did this voluntarily. Yes, he had to die, but Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to face all of that So weep over your sin, yes, but, but weep tears of must have for you that he was willing to go through all of that to make you his. And then last thing, hope. When you look at life, are you feeling a sense of hopelessness? Do you feel like your life just plain sucks and it's never going to get any better And you don't know how you're going to face tomorrow because you're dealing with mental illness or psychological problems or financial woes or relationship heartbreaks or substance abuse or a host of different struggles or maybe just a daily malaise where when you wake up and the sun shines, you don't see everything in color, you see it in gray. 
friend of mine who lost a son and spiraled into a period of depression described his own life that way. He said, I woke up every day and I saw it all in shades of gray. I didn't even see color anymore. This is Friday, but Sunday's coming. And the God who sovereignly planned that his son would die in your place for sin also sovereignly planned to raise him from the dead and burst the, the gates of hell itself. And because you can be sure that he rose from, from his hell, whatever hell you're facing right now, because you are his, you can be sure that you will rise too. And you can taste the rising even now. You're not the disciples, okay? Don't spend today like the disciples. The disciples, when Jesus died and they put him in the tomb, they went home and some of them probably thought about killing themselves because they had no hope, because they had no clue. But you live on the other side of the empty tomb. And so as you remember what Jesus did in his death for you, don't ever forget that he also rose for you. Go home, hit YouTube, and type in, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And listen to it. God is sovereign over your life. He was sovereign over his own sons, and look what he did for him. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Pray with me. Father, thank you for what your son did for us. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his willingness to face it. Help us to see the magnitude of your love in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.